Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, July 19th. We begin with a look at what's being referred to as energy blackmail by the Russians. We speak with Professor Christian Leuprecht from the Royal Military College for details on the situation surrounding the controversial role that Canada is playing by sending a recently repaired energy turbine back to Germany. Next, it's called the role model effect, and it could be applied to the upcoming UCP leadership race and provincial election. We speak with UFC political science professor Susan Franchette on how the current state of politics in Alberta could be beneficial to both women and girls in the province. And finally, from the return of COVID-19 testing at Canada's major airports to the continued delays when it comes to renewing your passport, what you need to know before you book that next trip with the travel lady, Leslie Cater. Is Canada playing into Russian hands by sending Russian gas turbines back to Germany? With insight, we are joined by Christian Loiprest, professor at the Royal Military College and Queen's University, senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Good morning to you, Christian. Good morning. Thank you for taking the time with us. Um, I, I want to kind of set the scene because we, we read these headlines all the time, uh, but I'm wondering if you can break down the significance as to, to why these turbines are in Canada to begin with. So the Russian pipeline infrastructure goes back to Soviet times and was largely built out on German technology. And so Germany has always had a leading role in the world uh, in pipelines, in particular when it comes to gas pipelines and these turbines. And of course, we ourselves in Canada have significant pipeline capacity. And so Siemens happens to have built out its maintenance capacity um, in Montreal, uh, in part because it's sort of centrally located relative to uh, different distribution centers and because because it's also easy to reach uh, by boat as well as by plane because, as you know, there's a second airport that initially was a white elephant, um, but Mirabel has now become a, a key hub uh, to be able to move this type of equipment in and out expeditiously. Um, and so the trouble with, for instance, holding on to it would have been that there would have been a very high risk, not only of Siemens offshoring this maintenance capability, but also of other companies looking at this and saying that Canada is simply too high a risk uh, to do business in, so it was a threat to foreign direct investment more broadly. So, I mean, the controversy surrounding this, obviously, is that it appears to, in the long run, help Putin and Russia's war in Ukraine. Is, is Canada kind of a, between a rock and a hard place on this one? Yeah, it's a bit, I mean, that's a good point, right? It's uh, darned if you do, darned if you don't. Because on the one hand, uh, Canada gets in trouble when it doesn't provide energy and oil deliveries to Europe through pipeline capacity to the East Coast. On the other hand, it does get in trouble uh, when it then uh, returns the turbines. But look, I mean, these turbines were brought here entirely on the assumption that uh, Canada would be returning them. There was no indication by the government when they initially brought brought here that uh, the government was going to make any attempt to hold on uh, to them here. And the real problem here is that effectively, uh, the federal government was hijacking its most important continental uh, ally, which is Germany, and not returning that particular turbine um, causes the risk or even heightens the risk of economic and political calamity and meltdown in Europe. Look, Germany has reduced its Russian energy imports from 55% to 35% in a matter of months. But the reality is uh, that there's still about a third of gas in Germany and a higher percentage in countries such as Italy that comes through Russian pipeline infrastructure. And the Russians, of course, are already not delivering gas to about 
about half a dozen other European countries. And so without delivering the gas, it would mean, for instance, that much of a uh, considerable part of German chemical industry, which consumes about 15% of that imported gas, would need to shut down, which would cause massive global disruption, for instance, to pharmaceutical supplies. So it could not possibly in the interests, be in the interest of either Canada or Ukraine uh, to cause this type of economic and political meltdown in Germany, because, of course, that's exactly what Putin is trying to foment, which is this sort of instability. Christian, you co-authored an article for the Globe and Mail where you refer to this incident as energy blackmail. Can you expand on that statement? Yeah, so look, I mean, the German government under uh, initially Gerhard Schröder, the social democratic chancellor, and then subsequent his successor, uh, Angela Merkel, uh, made the uh, rather curious decision of making itself um, uh, overly dependent on Russian gas imports. So previously, as I mentioned, the Germans helped build out that Soviet pipeline infrastructure, but it was always meant as sort of leverage, political leverage by Germany over the Soviet Union and subsequently Russia. And so giving up nuclear energy, which sort of became part of the identity of the Greens and Chancellor Merkel always being a political tactician looking to mow a bit of the Greens lawn uh, after Fukushima saying Germany is going to get out of nuclear power without much national consultation um, and which caused considerable consternation among strategists now made itself wholly dependent um, on uh, Russian energy, in particular on Russian gas, but also Russian oil. And as I explain in my op-ed, Putin has had a 20-year strategy to make sure that he has a chokehold on energy pipeline energy exports to Europe. This is a major reason why he went into Syria. It's a major reason why Russia is causing trouble in Libya so that we can't get stability back into Libya because he wants to prevent other countries from being able to build out pipeline infrastructure into Europe so that he can essentially um, extort Europe through political leverage um, in terms of oil and gas. And the problem is, especially on natural gas, there are not a lot of countries in the world that can backfill that capacity because of the way natural gas is distributed. There are three NATO countries that have um, the significant gas reserves to do so, Norway, the United States, and Canada. And the problem with Norway and the United States is they are pretty much tapped out on what they can deliver. The one country that has significant capacity potentially to deliver is Canada. So is this the opposition political parties in Canada trying to make Trudeau look bad in this situation when it appears Canada really has little choice but to send these back? Yeah, so I think there's uh, too much political tactics here and, as always, not enough political strategy. I think we need a bit of a vision here of where do we actually want to be as a country and then as alliance when the international rules-based order is clearly under duress uh, from China and from Russia. And so what is in the best interests, not just of political parties that are trying to get elected and score political points, but what's actually in the best interest in the medium term of Canada and what's in Canada's best interest is to make sure that we shore up the, our closest allies and partners, because that strategy has served us well for the better part of 75 years, and has arguably made us um, the most prosperous uh, and stable continent that the world has ever known in its history. And so what I'm concerned about is that neither of the uh, main parties in Ottawa seem to have a clear understanding of that or a vision 
for where, you know, in five, ten years, the world isn't going to be an easier place. It's going to be even harder. And so we kind of need to start playing ahead a little bit because we always seem to be behind the eight ball here. And we seem to be having, having our head in the sands. Look, we're, we're, we're facing a global food crisis with countries melting down that literally cannot provide oil and food imports. If you think what's happening in Sri Lanka is an outlier, this is about what's going to be happening to about a half a dozen countries. What role does Canada need to play and can play in making sure that the Western alliance and the Western coalition uh, comes out on top here and that we don't ultimately um, uh, let, uh, uh, let the Russians and the Chinese um, win the day. Very interesting discussion. Thank you so much for your time, Professor. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. That is Professor Christian Loyprecht at the Royal Military College and Queen's University, Senior Fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. The UCP leadership race is in full swing in Alberta with 10 candidates vying for the top job. Four of them are women. What does this say about politics in our province? And could the UCP leadership race actually transform how women and girls think about politics? With a little insight on this topic, we're joined this morning by Susan Francis-Catt, who is a professor of political science at the University of Calgary. Good morning to you, Professor. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for inviting me. Do you think it's changing at all or does politics still sort of have that image of, you know, it's an old boys club and, and you know, that, that'll never truly change? Well, I, I kind of like to be optimistic and hopeful and think that we are starting to see some change. Um, this is, I mean, it's, it, we've never had four women out of the, you know, out of the, the field of hopefuls contesting the leadership. So this is, I think it, it it speaks to, you know, not only that there's a competitive race, but that women are willing to, you know, step up and throw their hat in the ring. And also, I think it's, it's um, worth noting that some of these women are, you know, relatively young. And so I wouldn't say that it is anymore an old boys club. So let's uh, let's talk about this then, Professor. How important is it for young women to see themselves reflected in our political leaders and is this something that is so new it might take a little while to catch on? Well, yes, it's extremely important. There is um, some really important emerging research in political science that's been done um, with children in schools to look at how um, how school children between the age you know between grades one and grade six view uh, political leadership and also how they you know whether they they you know, picture themselves as potential political leaders. And the research shows that it actually it, it really is rather depressing because it shows that very young children, grade one, um, are more likely to draw pictures of um, people from their own sex when they're asked to draw a political leader. So little girls at the age of six are, you know, about half of them are drawing women. However, by the time they get to grade six, so that's from grade one to grade six, they are more likely to draw a man. So what that tells us is that young children don't start out thinking that politics is for men. It's what they learn through, uh, whether it's through school, through watching the news, through, you know, hearing their parents talk about politics. So when they're, that's why I think this, this race is so important because, you know, if young children now are listening to their parents talk about the leadership race or if they're seeing images of the leadership race on the news and they're seeing people going up to the podium and talking and talking to reporters, 
they're seeing a lot of women, which means that it's kind of, you know, changing their conception that you have to be a man to be, um, you know, in politics. And speaking of race, I mean, the three women there, so four women in the race, one said to be a front runner, but the three other women, we don't hear as much about them, but I think it's really important that we point out that, you know, two of them come from Alberta's South Asian community and all of them have, you know, excellent political backgrounds. And I think, you know, all of it is really important in terms of giving a role model to young women, particularly, but just young people in general to see, you know, even more of themselves in those who are you know vying for a top job like this absolutely this is really challenging the idea that you have to be you know a white man of a certain age to think that you're you know that you have the qualities needed to potentially become a leader um absolutely as you said all three of the women um aside from um danielle smith the other three women in the race were all uh former cabinet ministers holding pretty important uh positions they um, they all have like really excellent credentials, and two of them would also add you know more diversity to um, you know to the to the leadership of the province if either of them were to win. Um, we already have a um, a situation in Alberta where two of our largest cities are led by um, members from the um, South Asian community. We would have. Um, you know, we would have an even more, uh, we probably even, you know, more challenge the, the, the stereotype of Alberta if, um, if either Lila or her or Lila here, I'm sorry, and Ray Johnsani were to, um, you know, to, to take, uh, you know, to take over leadership or to start, you know, um, to start being front runners themselves, which, you know, of course is, um, we don't know whether that's going to happen or not. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sure that this is not an Alberta-specific issue, Professor. Obviously, we're lasered in on our province. How do we compare to the other provinces? Or, or maybe if we take it you know, on a, on a larger scope uh, globally as far as this opportunity for young girls to see themselves reflected, are we behind or are we about the same as everybody else? Um, so talking about Alberta specifically, I mean, we're we're not doing as badly as other places in that you know, we have had two women premiers already, and we currently have a woman who is the leader of the opposition, um, Rachel Notley, who, you know, may well after the next election become Alberta's, uh, you know, become a, um, another woman to lead the province. So that would really put um, put Alberta out ahead in terms of having, you know, more than one. There's lots of countries that have had a woman president or prime minister, but often, you know, just one. Um, likewise, other provinces have not had, you know, several different women leading the province. Where I think we, you know, shouldn't be celebrating or patting ourselves on the back too much is that even if we, you know, even if Alberta's doing pretty well in terms of having women in leadership positions, there's still, you know, women are still not at parity in terms of the legislature. And Alberta, you know, falls behind other provinces and Canada overall falls way behind other countries in terms of electing women to um, to parliament or to legislatures. Could talk to you a lot longer about this. We'll have to leave it there for time, though. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That Bye. is Susan Francescat, professor of political science at the University of Calgary.
just when you thought things were getting back to normal, looks like testing for travelers, random COVID testing for travelers is returning for us across Canada, and that includes here at the Calgary Airport. So what do you need to know before you go? Let's check in with the travel lady, Leslie Cater. Hi, Leslie. Hi, good morning, Sue. Okay, so government going to reintroduce the random testing upon arrival at major Canadian airports. So what do we need to know about this? Okay, well, this will be for international arrivals, okay, and starts today. Now, in the time of things being so clogged in airports, I'm really surprised that they're coming Mm -hmm. out with this. And a lot of people say this is unhelpful and unnecessary. Some other people have, I've heard say, oh, maybe it's more proactive if we're going to have another wave. But I don't see how that makes sense with all the multiple activities we've had going on across Canada with crowds everywhere so it just seems to be another bit of a stumbling block and my concern is really i think for our domestic tourism sector because isn't this going to put people off coming into canada to visit you might think so right people don't want to do that anymore everybody wants to put it behind them even though we know COVID is still around Right, right, yes. I mean, the authorities say this won't impair the flow of traffic. I mean, we've seen terrible lineups everywhere. Um, Something that I did learn today, by the way, about travel, and because I'm heading off this afternoon to Vancouver Island, and they have this YYC Express. I don't know if you've come across this, where you can book your um, time to go through the security line. And it's a separate line. It's almost like that nexus line going through security. So I thought that looked pretty cool. I'm going to try it out and I'll report back to everybody on Facebook so we can see how that goes. Uh, But you know what? People are still traveling through. It's busy. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Uh, One quick question because we've got about 30 seconds left. And I know that uh, passports have been very difficult to get our hands on. Um, In the case of like, for example, with my uh, uh, youngest daughter, we uh, ordered it uh, May 6th, still don't have it. We're not in a, a huge rush. It's not tomorrow the next thing, but do you have people who have ordered and have waited weeks and weeks? What if your trip is coming up and you still don't have your passport? Is there anything you can do? Well, I've heard that people have been trying to escalate this by um, going down uh, you know, physically to the offices, queuing up. Uh, you know, they. Pro- I don't know if they get turned away there. It's been very difficult, but it always seems that the people that I've spoken to about this, the passport comes in like the very last minute, two days before departure. Mm-hmm. And that's more stressful than anything in my mind. Um, so, gee, Andy, I hope that passport comes in for you. Let's hope so. I know this. he's certainly not the only one, unfortunately. And not in a huge rush, I can't imagine if it yeah. was. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Any questions, right. any concerns, you can always get in touch with the travel lady. She can find out for you if she doesn't know off the top of her head, which she mostly always does. We thank you for your time, <laughs> Leslie. Appreciate it. Thank you, Sue. Have a good day, guys. You too. Leslie Cater, The Travel Lady, thetravellady.ca or at The Travel Lady. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.